Welcome along to the latest episode of the Racing News 365 podcast. I'm Thomas Marr and I'm joined on the line by Dieter Rankin, who has had a nice few days in Austria and a very, very busy few days, Dieter, uh, popping off to see Helmut Marko in between the two races in Austria. Absolutely. Yeah, I was very fortunate that uh, Dr. Helmut Marko invited me across to his offices Wednesday morning. Uh, went across there, a wonderful view across Graz. Uh, he is, of course, from Graz, which is about 50 kilometers from the um, the Red Bull ring. Uh, he grew up in Graz uh, together with uh, Jochen uh, Rindt, the 1970 posthumous world champion who's actually buried in Graz. And um, so I went across to see um, Dr. Helmut Marko, and we had a chat about Red Bull, the future, etc. And as I was sort of leaving, he pointed through the window and said, have a look at that. And there against the cliff above one of the hotels he owns was this uh, Red Bull show car mounted on the cliff, which was which was just such a, a surreal sight. Um, he owns four hotels in, in Graz and um, two of them next to each other. And there, there this was above one of them. Unbelievable. It's a very Red Bull thing to do, really, isn't it? Mounting a car on a cliff. Absolutely. You know, you, you've had drivers mount them in their lounge walls and all sorts of things. But mounting it in a cliff, uh, on a cliff above a hotel in, in a major um, town is yeah, something different. Well, we had our second race in Austria and, of course, the last race of a triple header. First of all, triple headers, Dieter, do you think they're the right way to go? I know it's uh, slightly affected by the ongoing coronavirus uh, situation around the world, but triple headers, they're new to Formula One. What do you think of them? Well, I was tempted to interrupt you when you said it because the immediate reaction is no. Um, and let's not forget that we actually had a triple header um, uh, with uh, France, uh, Austria and uh, Great Britain in 2019. And, um, you know, it didn't work then. Yes, I think that COVID uh, is a sort of mitigating circumstance. But ultimately, you know, it, it really is very, very hard on the on the traveling staff in Formula One. Um, you know, it's hard on, on people uh, who don't have trackside jobs. Uh, but it's very, very hard on the people with trackside jobs because obviously they've got it. They leave the one place, they get the next one, they they build the garages, they prepare the cars, they do everything. And if they're lucky, very, very lucky, they'll sort of get half an afternoon off. And then, of course, come comes Thursday and then Friday and the, the race weekend. And it really is very, very hard on them. Not only that, that was a triple header where two of the races were at the same venue. And of course, France and Austria, you know, they're not that far apart, geographically speaking. But later in the year, we've got Russia, Turkey, Japan, all as a triple header. That's going to be ferociously difficult on the teams. Absolutely. Well, I think um, yeah, I think the jury's still out at this stage about exactly what will happen with with japan uh but you know we do have the um the belgian dutch and monza triple header and those distances are also pretty far apart i mean you know we're talking a thousand kilometers from belgium down to monza or thereabouts um and in fact more because we go belgium then we go north to zanfurt then we go south to to monza so you know it is also pretty hectic um whether they're all at the same venue or two of the three at the same venue or whatever it doesn't really make it that much easier to be honest because yeah of course they fly around whether you're flying a thousand kilometers or 1500 kilometers or whatever the, the difference in flying time isn't that much but it's the truckies that really suffer you know the distance really takes it out on them we've got uh, uh, double shifts and whatever else uh, or rotating shifts so you know it really is very very hard on formula one and you know the precedent was set back then with the original triple header uh, liberty promised never again 
now they have them and I really hope they don't become the, the rule rather than the exception. Well, let's talk about the actual racing, Dieter, and the second Austrian race, the Austrian Grand Prix itself. Not a particularly classic race, you would say. Max Verstappen romping to victory. And again, it was a, an imperious display from the Dutch driver. Absolutely. Well, the entire team, in fact. You know, I think Honda really is at the top of its game again. Um, you know, having been there in the 80s and the Ayrton Senna era, um, I, I think they've really, they, they are really back up there at the moment. Um, then, of course, the team is, is just performing absolutely superbly. Uh, Max is really, really on it. Uh, you know, I think just generally everybody is has just gone that extra one or two percent. In the opening races, we saw the balance of power kind of shift, you know, between Mercedes and Red Bull, seemingly dependent on the track. Now, with four out of the last five wins going to Max Verstappen, it should realistically have been five out of five. Um, do you see that the balance of power is now completely with Verstappen and Red Bull? I don't think it's completely there. I don't think the balance of power is ever completely with one particular team. Um, you know, I think that there's always the odd bogey track, and I think there's always this sort of unintended um, consequence of something that happens. Uh, there, there's also track-specific stuff. There is obviously um, the tyre factor. I don't believe it's fully with them, but it is certainly very, very close to the um, the pendulum is, has almost swung you know, all the way to the end. And Mercedes for the second weekend in a row looked very off the boil, if not even more off the boil second time round. Do you think they have even the remotest idea of what exactly is going wrong with their season? Why did they look so increasingly lost this year, Dieter? Um, I think there there are a number of factors. I think, first of all, Red Bull worked very, very hard. I believe that Honda worked very, very hard. You know, far be it from me to state categorically that Mercedes have been resting on their laurels, but I think they'd sort of wound their, their necks in a bit after, um, you know, the, uh, the displays of the last uh, seven seasons. This, of course, being the eighth and the last season under the current regulations. Uh, but I do believe that there's a bit of a human element there as well. You know, winning championships on a serial basis does take it out of people. I think that maybe, maybe their guard has been a bit down. And it's always very difficult to get your, your guard back all the way back up again once it's sort of slipped a bit. And I think that's it. I think the other thing is, of course, there has been upheaval at Mercedes with, um, you know, the, the sale of Mercedes to uh, some shares to to Ineos, uh, Toto's uh, a role, Toto Wolf, the team principal, his role has been sort of repurposed slightly because he's now an equal shareholder with Mercedes. You know, there are all sorts of factors. And uh, I think that there's been a sort of disruption and uh, fundamentally, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's to the benefit of the sport. Just have a look at what scintillating, scintillating racing we've had. We are seeing some fantastic racing, but the one thing that was really noteworthy from this particular race was the fact that, yes, Lewis Hamilton picked up some damage during the race and that resulted in him, you know, moving back into the clutches of Valtteri Bottas. Normally, that wouldn't be an issue for Mercedes. They'd have the luxury of, you know, kind of massaging their cars home. But on this occasion, they weren't able to do that because of how close McLaren were and how close in particular Lando Norris was to them. 
Is it now a case of Mercedes can't rest on the laurels of, you know, hoping that they'll be able to come home in second place on the weekends where, where Verstappen has beaten them? Well, you know, we have we have Lando obviously putting in a tremendous display. Um, we, we should also not forget the uh, the Sergio Perez factor. Uh, you know, so Mercedes would love if, you know, if, if Max is going to win, Mercedes would love Lewis to finish second at least um, if he can't beat him, because that way they can still sort of keep the championship battle alive. But let's not forget that, you know, uh, Sergio Perez has the ability to relegate Lewis to third. And then, of course, you have Lando um, sort of nipping away at the ankles of the of the Mercedes. And uh, fundamentally, you know, he could also beat them so you know i think it's very very difficult for mercedes at the moment it's almost as though people are coming at them from all sorts of angles well sergio perez qualified ahead of both mercedes drivers and in the early stages it looked as though you know red bull were were looking good for maybe a one-two finish but maybe it was the pressure of that knowing that that possibility was there maybe that's what made sergio push so hard and try to get past Lando Norris, you know, too quickly. Um, Perez may be a little bit impatient in trying to clear the McLaren too too early on. Yeah, and I think Lando may be a bit too robust in his defence. And, you know, we saw what happened. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's rather interesting because, um, you know, if somebody does try, we say, well, maybe he was impatient. If he doesn't try, we sort of say, well, you know, what's wrong with him? And I think we've got to accept that races will be races. Um, Sergio will go for it. Lando will defend. And, you know, maybe, although although Michael Massey and his media debrief last night was sort of defending the penalties, I do believe that we there, there should be an element of leniency, uh, you know, when it's really, really um, uh, getting hot, which, which it is at the moment. You know, at the moment, because we've got such fierce racing, people are looking for every single advantage because I know that if they don't grasp it immediately, it could disappear. So, you know, there, there's no waiting for an easy move or anything like that. And I think under those circumstances, these things will happen. And it, you know, it's a great pity to have them interrupted by by penalties. Do you think the, the penalty system is, is becoming a little bit too harsh and a little bit too uh, trigger happy? Possibly slightly trigger happy, but the problem is when you have precedence, you can't suddenly not impose what you imposed two or three years ago because that basically is the is the code of conduct with the FIA, that when there's a precedent, the same sort of penalty needs to be handed down. I think what has happened is that we have far more of these situations because the racing is so tight. You know, in the past, you, you didn't see anywhere near the sort of on-track maneuvers that we've seen recently recently because people were you know separated by performance nowadays they're very very close so obviously the, the racing is closer and obviously we're going to have more and more of these sort of incidents while lando is going to lose two points before the the next race at silverstone right now he is on 10 penalty points let's assume in the hypothetical situation that this incident had happened while he was on 10 points. What do you think the optics of him picking up a race ban for that move with Perez would have been to to fans? I I think it would have been uh, extremely harsh. And, you know, people looking on would just say, what, a driver has been banned for that? Yeah, but he hasn't been banned for that. You know, um, and this, I think, is our job to educate the the fans that this there is a penalty system in place, that he has been attracting penalties um, for the last couple of races, in fact, more than the last couple of races. Um, and because of that, 
that, you know, ultimately uh, he he does stand to to be banned. He should be aware of it, and he should conduct himself accordingly. I know that it's a great pity in terms of the racing, but ultimately these points have been accumulated over a period. Let's let's try and compare it to drink drive offence, where somebody has had a few of these, and he's ultimately almost on the limit in terms of points, and now he's point zero zero one percent over on the uh, when the police stop him next time, and he gets banned for a year. People don't say, well, you know, he was only 0.01% over. There were all the other occasions as well that have contributed to it. Well, he is going to be moving back down to eight points Correct. by the next race at Silverstone. And um, those eight points, I think, are in place for, I think, about another seven or eight races. So realistically, Lando does have to be careful over the next two, three months of racing. Of course he does. But, you know, um, so, so do all sorts of drivers have to be careful. And some of them have been careful. And, you know, that's it. And let's not forget that he could very easily have spoiled Perez's race. Yeah, it didn't get to that, but it could have got to that. And, you know, this is the issue. And equally, you know, Sergio also almost spoiled uh, Charles Leclerc's uh, race twice. And, uh, you know, th- this, unfortunately, is a situation. We, we can't have people just taking others out in the heat of, of battle because it's unfair on the on the guy who's sitting on the outside uh, putting in an overtaking maneuver, for example. Well, let's look at two other drivers who picked up penalties and uh, penalty points over the weekend. Sebastian Vettel on Saturday yep. um, incurring the wrath of Michael Massey figuratively speaking, picking up the wrath of Michael Massey, uh, for holding up Fernando Alonso starting a flying lap at the end of uh, Q2. But Vettel kind of the innocent party, but had to be penalised as he was the one that that blocked Alonso, Dieter. Uh, Correct. And, you know, I think if I may correct you, he didn't incur the wrath of Michael Massey. The race director does not hand down the penalties. The, um, The stewards do. And um, although Michael agreed with the penalty, the, the race director normally agrees with the with the steward, stewards because he's seen he's got the same angle of a particular incident. He's got the data. He's got all sorts of things. Um, but but ultimately, yes, Sebastian was possibly slightly unlucky that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But again, you know, these things happen. And um, it's up to drivers to be aware of what's going on around them at all times. You know, we've, we've had Sonoda get called in and, um, you know, he, he's blocked people during qualifying as well. And, you know, the team should actually make the guy aware of the fact that this is what's going on. Sonoda is actually the other driver Correct. that I wanted to mention to you because he picked up two penalty points in two separate incidents. Uh, during the race for crossing the white line when coming into the pits. It just seems to be a silly, silly lapse in concentration, Dieter. What what do you think was the reasoning behind those incidents? Well, I think that, that, that Yuki is really trying very, very hard. In fact, he's probably over trying at times. I think he's trying to match Pierre Gasly as well, which is, a you know, <laughs> Pierre's a tough act to follow. Um, and he's also obviously trying to impress the Red Bull people. Let's not forget that Yuki is in Formula One effectively, and here I hope I'm not doing him too much of a disservice, but effectively um, as, as a Honda driver, and Honda do leave at the end of this year. Does Yuki uh, deserve to be an F1? Absolutely. Would he be an F1 without Honda? I doubt it. And that's the point that I was trying to make when I said that he's actually there courtesy of Honda. Uh, but basically, I think that Yuki is now doing everything to try and prove that he should be retained next year because he knows that Honda are leaving. And I think that this is leading to a bit of overdriving. Let's not forget, he is young. This is his first season. You know, three years ago, he was still in, in Formula 4. 
Uh, so, you know, he's not only moved across from Japan to Europe, which is a totally different uh, environment. He's also moved from four to three to one very, very quickly. And, you know, we can we, we can cut him a bit of slack for making the, the, the or having the odd lapse as long as it doesn't continue well into the future. Do you think at this exact moment that Red Bull will keep him on for next season? I see no reason to doubt that they will, but who knows? Uh, you know, they've got all sorts of people. They've got Alex Alban who's hanging around the paddock. They may decide to give Alex another try. Um, although I doubt it, there's talk that, that Daniel Kvyat could, could return to the Red Bull fold. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of drivers bubbling under. And I think, and if we have a look at some of the other uh, Red Bull drivers, I mean, they've got Yuri Vips, who's been very, very successful in junior categories. There's Liam Lawson. Uh, you know, they're, they're drivers all over the place. And um, they could they could uh, deploy any one of those and, and rest your I mean, it's not unknown either for Red Bull to take somebody out after a year, rest them, stick them into other categories, DTM, whatever, and then um, take them back into F1 again. Let's talk about McLaren and the MCL 35M, seemingly to be a match for the Mercedes W12 around Austria, particularly in the hands of Lando Norris. But we also saw signs of improvement from Daniel Ricciardo, at least on Sunday. Um, Daniel's starting to, to pull up his socks a little bit, Peter. Well, I think that, that he realises the team is now really running out of patience. You know, when I talk to team people on record, um, there's a lot of, oh, well, you know, we understand we're trying our hardest. Yeah, we, we're helping him, etc. When you talk to them off record, you can see that there's a bit of frustration there. And, you know, let's not forget Daniel doesn't come cheaply. And um, he's at the moment is not delivering and he, he's fully aware of that. And I think there is a bit of frustration. I think that they have really um, read him the um, uh, the contract clauses, shall we say. And I think that, you know, he's, he's now really trying. The, I think the issue is that he still hasn't got full confidence in that car for whatever reason. And, um, you know, I was talking to somebody who's said the problem with Daniel is that he just doesn't want to risk a late braking maneuver to overtake because he doesn't have that confidence and he's afraid it's going to go wrong and that will look even worse. You know, at least at the moment, he's actually finishing races, maybe not at the sharp end, but he's finishing them. Can you imagine how much stick he'd come in for if he was running around in eighth, ninth, tenth place, pulled one of his, his trademark late braking maneuvers and then lost it? And I think this is the issue, that it's a very, very tight um, a rope to walk for him. And um, at, at the moment, he's, he's erring on the side of caution. Yeah, because he started 13th, was up to 9th very early on in the race. And, you know, he was, he was involved in the race then from that point on. Um, unlucky to lose out to Carlos Sainz towards the end of the race. But there are signs that the Daniel we all know and love is emerging. And uh, long may that continue, I suppose, Peter. Absolutely. But, but yeah, I, I mentioned Carlos Sainz there, and I wanted to ask you about Carlos because um, he took a gamble starting on the hard tyre in Sunday's race, but from there he produced an absolute masterclass. Had to rely on, you know, Charles Leclerc getting out of his way towards the end of mm -hmm. the race, which Charles did. But from there, Carlos, uh, you know, really delivered to, to end up in fifth after starting outside the top 10. Of course. He, Carlos is a very tenacious driver. You know, I think that he's inherited that that character trait from his father, the, um, the double world rally champion, Carlos. And Carlos Jr. has, has got that sort of never give up uh, approach where he does keep pushing through to the very, very end. He may not be the outright fastest over a single lap, but he's 
certainly one of the most dependable over a full race distance. Well, there was a bit of a silly incident right at the very end of the race when Kimi Raikkonen and Sebastian Vettel had a bizarre coming together. It was very unlike, um, you know, you would say Kimi Raikkonen was the one to blame for the incident and the stewards saw it that way as well by giving mm. him a, a post-race penalty. But it was very unlike Kimi, but it clearly wasn't an intentionally malicious manoeuvre or anything like that. So wh- what did you make of that incident, <laughs> uh, Dieter? Did, did Kimi deserve the penalty? Well, it was certainly bizarre and it was in many ways inexplicable. And accordingly, you know, I, I wonder whether Kimi wasn't just tired at the end of the race. You know, it's a pretty arduous circuit. The speeds are very high. It wasn't the the coolest of afternoons. Um, and I think Kimi was probably um, uh, slightly tired and he laps of concentration, you know, right at the end of the race, final lap, whatever. And um, and that was it. And again, we have to guard against these because that, that could have been a very serious incident. It's it's something that we're seeing a little bit more of from Kimi this year. We saw the incident in uh, Portimao where he, he just drove straight into the back of, of Giovinazzi while distracted. We've seen a couple of, you know, clipping of other drivers, damaging the front wing and all that. Do you think there are signs that Kimi's racing prowess is, is starting to fade off a little bit to in a, to a greater extent than we've seen in recent years from him? Um, I think that ultimately Kimi is now having to push himself very, very hard to uh, perform at the sort of level that once came naturally for him. And I think that that's probably where it's at. And I frankly believe that this is the last year for Kimi. I don't believe we won't ever see him racing again, but I doubt very much that you'll see him in Formula One going forward. I think he'll probably end up in WEC or um, at GTs, possibly go back to rallying, which he's done. You know, he uh, he's had a fairly varied career as well, and uh, there's no reason why he can't go, uh, go and be successful in, in, say, WEC or GT or something similar. Could you see him fitting in well in IndyCar or do you think he's too happy and settled with family in, in Switzerland to, to make that kind of move? I think that sort of move right now at, at this age uh, will be uh, a demanding challenge. I, I really do. And I think, again, you know, as you say, he's, he's well settled in Switzerland. He's got his family there. He's a very happy family man. Uh, the WEC program is nowhere near as, as arduous as the, um, the IndyCar program. So, you know, he could, he could perform at world championship level in, in WEC, be it uh, at this sort of LMP type cars or be it in GT and sports cars, whatever. But I think that he could have a very successful career there. Assuming this is Kimi's last year in in Formula One, uh, you've been there right from the start of his career. What what would be the the, the abiding memory you have of Kimi if he does walk away from the sport? Um, I, I would imagine it's his. Uh, you know, we, if we look at Kimi, we look at a total package, and you know you can't separate the off track Kimi from the on track Kimi. And I believe that it's the the sort of approach that he's had, which is really I'm here for the racing. Um, you know, everything else is secondary. The sponsor work, the media work, whatever is all secondary. I'm here to race. Um, I was very fortunate to be the first uh, journalist to to interview Kimi back in 2001 when he was uh, announced as a Formula One driver by Sauber. And, um, you know, I, I remember that interview and it really was, um, it, it was just so much fun. I've got some photographs of that. And he and I are both smiling, etc. And he was just so happy to be in Formula One. 
And, um, you know, I still think that he loves racing. He loves driving. Uh, and all the rest of it is to him just secondary. Um, I'm hearing that um, one of the replacements for Kimi, assuming he doesn't continue next year, uh, could possibly be Valtteri Bottas. And I know that that sounds almost too left field to be true, but there, there are various pointers which would suggest that Valtteri could actually end up there. You know, he's he's very well spoken. He's clean cut um, and he's very presentable. Alfa Romeo, assuming they continue with the Sauber team, and I believe that the, the contract is going to be extended uh, shortly, uh, would need that sort of brand ambassador. Uh, Valtteri would tick that box. Uh, equally, Valtteri won the Formula 3 championship in 2011 for Fred Vasseur, his aunt, uh, Formula 3 team. And Fred, of course, is now team principal of the Sauber Alfa Romeo operation. And then finally, Toto Wolff and Fred Vasseur are very close friends, very, very close friends. And, you know, Toto's been on record as saying that if they don't renew Valtteri's contract, then uh, they would like to sort of ensure that he has what they call a soft landing. And I, I would don't be surprised if one Finn replaces another for next year at the Alfa Romeo team. And really overlook Callum Eilat? Um, well, you know, Callum could could go elsewhere. Let's not forget that if Valtteri does, for example, go to, uh, to Alfa, uh, then, of course, George is the shoe-in at Mercedes. That would leave a seat open at uh, Williams. Uh, Callum is worthy of being in Formula 1, without a doubt. Um, he's got Ferrari backing, yes, but equally, um, you know, I think that Williams would be amenable to taking him as a, as a driver uh, with some Ferrari uh, support. So, you know, I don't think that that's beyond the bounds of possibility. Um, and equally, you know, we, we, they're, they're unlikely to be other openings up and down the uh, down the grid. But I think that this brings us to the, the overriding point, and that is that there just are not enough teams in Formula 1 at the moment. We need 12 teams, 24 cars. Okay, so Dieter, there's no race this weekend. First weekend in four weeks without a race, but no rest for the wicked just yet. You're off to Monaco for the FIA Sport and Mobility Conference in Monte Carlo. Absolutely. In fact, I'm speaking to you right now from the hotel in Monaco. Wonderful, glorious weather here. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to the first session tomorrow, which again is um, is indicative of Jean Todd's approach of basically merging the two legs that the FIA's got, namely mobility and motorsport. And the first session tomorrow, we'll discuss um, a, a merging of the sort of power unit uh, regulations with the future road car requirements so that road and track uh, increasingly merge in terms of their technologies, their safeties and whatever else. And that really is the uh, the theme of this conference, which is, is called Purpose Driven. And, um, you know, it's we're looking at the sustainability of motorsport, its contribution to society as a whole. Uh, the various uh, spin-offs we've had from motorsport in terms of, you know, advanced engineering projects. I mean, for example, there's a building being built in London at the moment, which has used Formula One CFD and wind tunnel uh, technologies and techniques to ensure that the uh, the wind doesn't blow all over this building. And so, you know, for, motorsport technologies can be applied and deployed in all sorts of walks of life. And that really is the theme of this particular conference. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a wonderful three days. And then I'll be back in um, in Belgium on Friday. Well, thank you very much, as ever, Dieter, for joining us. Enjoy the conference in Monte Carlo. And we'll talk to you again here on the Racing News 365 podcast very soon. Thank Absolutely. You very much for Look forward us. to it. Thank you.